Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and turn with me to the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, the in the Old Testament, and we will be in chapter thirty-six this evening. If you are uh, one of our children using the children's Bibles that we have at the back of the church, it would be on page 575 is where we'll begin. So if you want to grab one of the children's Bibles and turn to 575, that way you'll be able to follow along with with your folks or with your parents and, and me as we go through this text together. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in His Word, and then we'll read 2 Chronicles 36 in its entirety. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this evening of worship, Lord, this day of Sabbath rest where we set aside for these hours all of our worldly concerns, all of the things that we're busy with, good things, even excellent things that You've given us to do week in and week out, and yet one day in seven You call us to rest from our labors to rest in the finished work of Christ. We receive all of the spiritual nourishment we need to go out into the week ahead of us full with Christ, full of grace, full of the Spirit, that we might do the good works that You've prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Would You teach us now by Your Word? Would You open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things contained in Your law and Your gospel? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 36, I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter for context because I'll be making reference uh, throughout it during our time together this evening, but our focus will principally be on verses 22 and 23 at the end of the chapter, and so you'll want to pay uh, special attention there as we get to it here in a moment. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 36, this is the word of the Lord, please take heed how you hear it. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in the palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord, and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. 
Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels." He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. May he add his blessing to its reading and preaching. One of the things that many people look forward to on Christmas morning is the surprise of opening an unexpected gift. Many people personally enjoy that moment of surprise when they open something that they didn't expect to get, that gift that they didn't even know that they wanted. Perhaps they didn't think anybody else knew that they wanted it, and they open that surprise gift. They also love to see the look of surprise on other people's faces when they have spent time and energy thoughtfully buying a present for them. For others of us, the surprise is the part we like the least. Just tell me now. It's tomorrow, December 26th. You can tell me now what you'll get me for Christmas next year, and I'd be satisfied with knowing a full year in advance. But from time to time, we get gifts that surprise us, don't we? Things that we never would have thought of, that, that 
wrapping paper tears open and the box top opens up and you look at something you just could not have anticipated getting, a special, a thoughtful, a personalized gift. Maybe you didn't even know yourself that you wanted or needed it. The surprise, it's part of the excitement of opening presents. There are also surprising answers. Sometimes we get surprising answers to questions we ask. You parents will know this uh, reality. You ask your child a question, you think the answer is obvious, why they did what they did, or what in the world they thought they were doing, and the answer they give you is totally unexpected. Uh, Their view of things, their version of reality is slightly different from yours, and from their little perspective, they were doing something because it made total sense, and their answer sometimes surprises us. Other surprising answers, for example, if you were to ask what is the meaning of life and the universe and everything, you would find out the answer is 42, and that's surprising. But life's full of surprises, isn't it? Life is full of surprises. Well, in our text this evening, God shows Himself to be a God of surprises, a God who does things, acts certain ways, and answers our questions in surprising ways. And this is really, really good news. You see, if God were to act and do and answer in ways that we could guess or assume or presume or in ways that we would act or do or answer things, we would be in big trouble. If you or I were God, we would not be a God known for long-suffering and patience, would we? We would not be known as steadfast and faithful to our promises. We would not be known as surprisingly merciful and gracious to the undeserving. Rather, we would turn into cosmic bullies because power corrupts absolutely, doesn't it? We would instantly destroy our enemies, reserving our greatest acts only for those most faithful to us, certainly not for those who hate us. Many of you know this reality in your own home. Imagine the arguments you have with your spouse or with your children or with your parents if you had the power of God. How quickly would our loved ones become our enemies, would become disintegrated before our very eyes. As you've heard it said, if our hearts had hands, how covered in blood they would be. But thank God that God is not like us and that we are not God. God is a surprising God. He does things that we would never do, acts in ways that we would never imagine, answers questions with answers that we could never have guessed, and all according to His perfect and wise and powerful plan. In our text this evening, we're going to see three surprising things, ways He acts, things He does, and answers He gives. I wonder for you this evening, in what way do you need to be surprised by God? In what way do you need to be surprised by God? Are you stuck in sin? Fighting it day after day? Hating it? Shedding tears over your sin night after night? And yet you believe the lie that God simply cannot and will not forgive you? Not me, you say. Not after all this, you think. I know what no one else knows about me. I can see inside the closet, and I know where the key is, and I know everything that's in it. And if if God knows all that, there's no way He can forgive me. Oh, I've been trying to fight this sin for decades now, and I can't get rid of it. Over and over again, I plead for forgiveness, and it seems to never come. And perhaps 
you've started to believe the lie that God will not forgive you, would you be surprised to know that God forgives the worst all the time just to show off His mercy and grace? Perhaps you feel increasingly fearful at the direction our country and our world is taking. You have a growing anxiety leading you to incessant worry, watching the news constantly, contemplating the legitimacy of crazy conspiracy theories, all to explain the workings of wicked men in the world. Would you be surprised to know that God uses the worst men to accomplish His perfect plan in the world all the time? From Cyrus, which we read about in our text, to Herod, who we'll talk about a little later this evening. God is in the business of using bad guys for good ends. Perhaps you feel like all your religion is gaining you nothing with God. You go to church morning and evening. You try to pray. You try to read the Bible every day. You try to do good things and act kindly to your neighbors. You try to stop sinning. You try to feel something of closeness with God. Basically, you're trying to earn favor with the Lord through your life. Would you be surprised to know that God does all the work in saving you? Not because you deserve it or have already tried as hard as you can, but simply because He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one that can fix your problems. He's the only one that can deal with your sin. He's the only one that can reconcile you to Himself. And in His Son Jesus, He calls you to simply come to Him with your burdens and lay them down at His feet, and He will give you the eternal rest that your soul craves. Would you be surprised to know that salvation is that simple? This is what we see in our text this evening. Chapter 36 of Second Chronicles is a short but sad account of the utter ruin and destruction of Judah and Jerusalem within just a few years of righteous King Josiah's reign. It comes on the heels of failure after failure of king after king. Israel is now owned by their enemies, by God's enemies, resulting in utter destruction, total loss. The destruction of the temple, the very place where God's presence was meant to dwell, where His worship was meant to occur. No longer is Israel God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now they're Babylon's people in Babylon's place under Babylonian rule. Things seem utterly hopeless at the end of verse 21. God, it says uh, in verse 16, the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. It seems hopeless. Total loss. Utter rejection. Distance from God. As Paul says in Ephesians, without hope or God in the world. But then we remember that God is a God of surprises, that He does and acts and answers in ways that we can't expect. And the first surprise we see in our text, especially now as we zero in on verses 22 and 23, is that God would use the pagan king Cyrus to accomplish His will for His people. Cyrus wasn't a good guy. Uh, Cyrus is not uh, recorded in any of the record books as being 
uh, particularly benevolent or kind in war, but rather as a brutal warrior king who conquered his enemies with an iron fist and laid waste to tens of thousands of people, relocating entire cities, entire nations, just to upend their cultural uh, norms, their uh, customs and their relationships, taking people and dispersing them to the edges of his kingdom so there would be no rebellion against him. It's hard when you, if you were to fill this room with people from one nation and another and another and another, they couldn't even communicate in order to create a rebellion to rise up against the king. Cyrus was brilliant, and this is what he did to his conquered nations. He wasn't a God-fearer. Cyrus wasn't walking around trying to find the Lord God of heaven. He wasn't conquering kingdoms because God had told him to conquer kingdoms, although he'll reflect on the fact that the Lord has given him all these kingdoms. But Cyrus was not a good man. He was brutal and vicious. The worst of the worst. Up there with Hitler and Stalin. Destroying his enemies without mercy. He was a pagan king with a pagan worldview and a cold, dead pagan heart. Surprising that God would use this man at all, let alone include him in Scripture. Paul might have referred to him in Ephesians 2 as being dead in his transgressions and sins under the just wrath of God. Not unlike you and me. Isn't it funny how often we think of all these people in Scripture or these bad characters in our society and our world and wonder how God could have anything to do with them at all? How in the world could God use Cyrus I mean, Cyrus. Oh, the Pharisees. We, the word Pharisee, we say the word Pharisee with a, a felt disdain in our voices, don't we? When we talk about Pharisees. Oh, the Pharisees. And Herod, what a wimp. Pushed over by all the Jewish religious leaders in the crowd. Oh, Herod. And Pilate crucified Jesus. Cyrus. We think about these characters and we we put them on this other list over here with all the bad guys, right? And we point our finger at them at how wicked they are, how evil they are, how useless they are in God's economy. But over here, this is where where we are, right? I mean, we're over here, right? We're not over there. We're the good guys. The surprise, folks, isn't that God would use Cyrus, but that he would love you and me at all. That's what should surprise us. The God who knows the intentions of our thoughts and the secrets of our lives, that he would show mercy and grace to us at all, should surprise us far more than that he would use Cyrus to accomplish his will in the world. If we knew ourselves and our sin half as well as God does, we should be shocked beyond belief that he would extend any kindness to us at all. That's surprising. And yet God does. He shows you and me great mercy and kindness in his son Jesus Christ. And here in our text, he uses this wicked king Cyrus in his surprising wisdom to accomplish his will on earth and for his people. Now, this ought to give us an incredible amount of certainty and confidence in our day of political uncertainty and unrest, shouldn't it? 
Many of you, I'm sure, find yourself glued to the television, glued to the news channel on your phone, glued to the chat rooms that talk about all the things that are happening and how this group of people over here and their dark money is informing this political thing that's happening. And we just can't imagine that uh, the wickedness of man can be overcome by the will and power of God. And we live in fear, fear of tomorrow. And Make no mistake, we have reason to be concerned that the world might not be a good place for our children and grandchildren to grow up in, but that doesn't dethrone God, the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. God uses Cyrus. God can use anybody, any political leader, any wicked person, any fool to accomplish His will on earth. Not only should this give us confidence in our day of unrest and uncertainty, it ought to personally give each one of us confidence with whatever trial we're going through. Among us in this room and in our membership at Christ Covenant Church, there are those who are battling persistent cancer that will not let up. Other diseases that are affecting your physical health. Others with mental health problems that are unspoken and unknown. Some of you with problems in your marriage that you're afraid if the people sitting near you found out that they would scoot just a little further away from you in the pew. Parents with children who are rebelling in ways that if your, your friends knew, they might not send their children over to your house anymore to be negatively influenced by them. Perhaps your finances have dried up and you don't know what tomorrow holds. Any such thing, we ought to have confidence that if God can use Cyrus to accomplish His will because He rules over all things in authority and power, that He can use your trial, your loss, your sin, your struggle, your failing health to bring Him glory and you eternal good in His presence forever. We ought to have confidence in God because He's surprising in the way He uses bad things for good ends. This, by the way, is God's normal way of doing things. It shouldn't surprise us anymore. The reason we're so often surprised is because we wouldn't do things this way, would we? If we were God, we would go to all of our friends' bank accounts and fill them up to a billion. We would go to all our friends' health and trim them down to 8% body fat with no uh, creaking joints, and they'd be able to run and lift weights and feel strong. We'd go to all their marriages and either fix their problems or replace them with two new people that would get along well. We'd discipline all the children in a way that kept them from running amok in church and in school and in society, and we would do things our way. But God never does things that way, and yet we're always surprised when He acts like God. Think with me about Scripture and the way God has used in surprising ways the worst to do the best. He uses Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to exalt Joseph to the second in command in order to save his people, who by the way are pretty foolish and rebellious, from certain death and famine. Surprising, isn't it? God uses pagan sailors to get Jonah's attention because they realize that the God of heaven and earth is the one causing the storm, and they cast Jonah overboard to be swallowed by the fish. That's surprising that Jonah, the Hebrew, is not worshiping but running, and the pagan sailors fall down on their knees and worship. Or turn with me to Acts chapter 4, the greatest surprise of all. Acts chapter 4, we read of the apostles being uh, tried by the Sanhedrin 
the Sadducees, I, I should say, and being sent away because they had nothing to punish them for. And when they're released, it says in verse 23, they go to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they, being the entire congregation of disciples, lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who are they talking to? The Lord who rules over all things and all people. You who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nation or the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then listen here carefully with me. You young people who were in our youth small group the last two uh, months will recognize this text as one of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. The way that the New Testament uh, authors and speakers interpret the Old Testament as being fulfilled in Christ. There's a one-to-one correspondence here. Five characters in view. Look with me again at verses 25 and 6. The Gentiles and the peoples and the kings are gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. There's five characters in view here. And then he says in verse 27, for truly in the city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and peoples of Israel. All all of them are there, present in this text. To do what? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Hold on a second. That whole mock trial? Herod and all of his wickedness? Pilate and all of his weakness? The people of Israel and all of their uh, sinfulness? The chief priests and the rulers and the scribes and their hatred and jealousy over Jesus? That was God's plan? He used that to accomplish our salvation. Of course God can use Cyrus. Of course God can use your cancer. Of course God can use the president. Of course God can use Putin or whoever he wants to accomplish his will because he rules over all things. Notice that Cyrus doesn't only let them go rebuild the temple, but according to Ezra 1, he restores many of the vessels of the temple that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. We read about those here in chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles, if you want to turn back there. They had taken the vessels, and then whatever was left, they destroyed. And Ezra chapter 1 tells us that Cyrus restored many of those things to the people to send back. Don't miss this point. God not only uses this wicked king to accomplish his will, he blesses his people through him he gives them back their possessions their items of worship and sends them back to israel to rebuild the temple notice that cyrus himself acknowledges who this god is look at verse 23 with me cyrus the king of persia says the lord the god of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth Cyrus acknowledges that the God who rules heaven owns the kingdoms of the earth and has given them to Cyrus. Cyrus acknowledges God's total sovereignty and power and rule over all. God is the ruler over all. He's the ruler over all history. Cyrus acknowledges this. He's sovereign over Cyrus's history. He may not have known this, but Isaiah the prophet 200 years earlier had named Cyrus 
as one of the Lord's servants, as his anointed. That word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach. It's Messiah. Isaiah refers to Cyrus as God's Messiah, his anointed one who will accomplish his purpose in history and in time. God is sovereign over Cyrus's history, over Persia's history, over Babylonian history and Israel's history. He's God over redemptive history, and he's God over your personal history, even the sins that you struggle to reconcile with today. The ones that you hate so much about your past that they gnaw at your conscience and whisper in your ear, there's no way God could really forgive you for that. There's no way that he would really welcome you into his family with that skeleton in your closet. Get real. He's the God over all history, even your personal history and mine, as well as our future. What a comfort there is in God's surprising ways. Well, second, we're surprised that God would be merciful to Israel after their past failure and idolatrous ways. This whole chapter is replete with illustrations of Israel's failure. Failed kings, hard hearts, stiff necks, idolatry, rebellion against God, and even against fellow man. The people were in exile for a reason, weren't they? They're not there on accident. They weren't there because the Babylonians were simply stronger than them. The people were exiled because they deserved God's wrath for their sins. They're on the wrong side of God's favor for 70 years in exile because their sins were so great against God. Uh, Not to repeat a point, but even the vessels of the temple God allowed to be destroyed and taken away because their sin was so great. Their place of worship was burned to the ground and the walls of the city were laid flat for their enemies to come in and plunder their capital. That's how great their sin was against God. That God allowed the beautiful things that He had commissioned for use in His worship to be taken away into exile with them. There's a bit of irony in this punishment. It's the Chaldeans, it says in verse 17, who kill their young men with the sword and in the house of the sanctuary and take all the vessels and destroy them and burn the house of God and break down the walls. It's the Chaldeans who carry Israel off into captivity, the very people from which God called Abram to come and be his man. There's some irony in that. There's irony in the fact that the world that Abram was called out of to be a people unto God, he was now sending his descendants back to because of their wicked and idolatrous ways. Now let me ask you a question. Are we guilty of sending our children back to the Chaldeans by the way we fail to worship God correctly in our lives, in our corporate worship, in our family worship, and with the things we choose to do with our time? God has blessed us with families, covenant families, to be in fellowship and relationship with God. And like Israel, we are at risk of sending them back to the very place that we were called out of by our failure to worship God and show them His glory in our homes and in our lives. What a dangerous position we place our children in when we are called out of this world and then we live lives like those in the world and our children are carried away from the church back to Babylon. It tells us in this text that they continued to do all the abominations of the world around them. 
All the abominations of the nations, it says in verse 14. And when you and I in our homes live lives like the world, it should be no surprise to us that our children would go back to the world rather than stay with the Lord. This is what we see here happening in Israel. But God is patient, isn't He? It's surprising how patient and long-suffering God is with the people. He sends prophets and messengers to them over and over. It says, persistently God sent them by His messengers uh, the word of the Lord, but the people kept mocking them. They mocked Jeremiah and didn't listen to him and all of these other messengers and prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people and there was no remedy. The fact that God raised up prophets and messengers to warn His people ought to serve as a warning to those who would hear the word of the Lord and not respond to it. When God's word calls you to repent of your sins and believe and you don't, you take your own soul into your hands, just like Israel did. This is where we find Israel in verse 21 of 2 Chronicles 36. They're out of the land, they're in captivity, and they deserve to be there. And if we were writing the story, that would be it, wouldn't it? But God surprises us with mercy in this text. He issues a decree through Cyrus to let them go home for a purpose. To build the temple, it says. The Lord has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. God wants them to come back, not just to dwell in the land, but to worship. God invites the people back into his presence to worship, uh, to build the temple, which is the place of worship. Even the very last phrase here, let him go up, that word go up is Allah in in, uh, Hebrew, and it's specifically related to the word for a burnt offering, which is Olah. God is telling them, I want sacrifices, I want worship, I want you, my people of old, to be my people now. I want you to come back to me. Come into my presence. How does the psalmist say it in Psalm 100? Or we sang it this, this evening, didn't we? To go into his courts with joy and enter his courts with thanksgiving. He wants them to come back to the temple, to rebuild it that he might be worshipped. What a great mercy that God would invite these wicked, rebellious people back to himself. That should surprise us. Because that's his mercy towards us as well. How great are our sins against God. How great are our sins against God? Just like the Israelites, we, we've lived lives of hard-heartedness and our necks are stiff and we rebel against God and commit idolatry in all sorts of ways, and yet He continually extends mercy and kindness and forgiveness to His people in surprising ways. His slowness to destroy Israel should be shocking to us. It happens in the span of a chapter, but it, it occurs over the course of decades This character reigned for 11 years, and this one for three, and another one for three, and another one for 11. It occurs over decades before it's all said and done. How many prophets, how many messengers did God send to get the people's attention? Because God is patient with us in our sin. Some of you young people think that God's patience is never-ending. It's not never-ending. It's long-suffering, not never-suffering. 
And eventually God's patience wears out. And some of you believe that you can go on living in rebellion against your parents and in sin against God, and there will be no consequences. Continue to live as though there's no authority in your life whatsoever. You continue to stiff-arm the Word of the Lord and reject the authority of your parents and their loving discipline or their care and concern for you. And you discover like Israel did, the wrath of the Lord will rise up and there will be no remedy. But God is patient, isn't He? And in His mercy, He shows patience to His people by continuing to extend to them invitations to return to Him, to repent. This is the same disposition God shows us. Each week we come here and we confess our sins and hear of His pardon, don't we? And we're reminded that repentance is available to us every day and forgiveness is ours every day as we come before the Lord of mercy. Well, God is merciful not just to Israel here in 2 Chronicles 36, but this too is His way throughout history, isn't it? We can think of countless places in the Old Testament where God uses the most hard-hearted people. He approaches the most hard-hearted people in His mercy and kindness. Think about Abraham, the liar. Or Jacob, the trickster. Or Moses, the murderer. Or David, the adulterer. Or Peter, the denier. Or Paul, the persecutor. And yet God shows mercy, doesn't He? Because His ways are surprisingly merciful. I wonder if you need to be surprised today by the mercy of God to those who least deserve it. Look at how He acts to His people throughout redemptive history. The way that He treats those who humble themselves before Him and come to Him with contrite hearts. He's merciful and gracious to them and He is to you and me as well. Well, the final surprise that we see in this text, perhaps the most shocking of all, Not only does God give mercy in restoring His people to their land, but He gives them the grace of His presence as well. He doesn't just send them back to Israel, tell them to go back, that's where they belong. Send them back to Israel, that's fine. Yep, let them go. Rather, look at the decree that the Lord put into the mouth of Cyrus. Whoever is among you of all His people, may the Lord His God be with him. Be with him. God himself goes with his people in surprising ways. This happened in Exodus, didn't it? When the people rebelled against God with the golden calf in Exodus 32. And God tells Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to go down there and kill them all and rebuild a nation out of you. And Moses says, no, Lord, don't do it for the sake of your reputation. What would the Egyptians say? What would the nations say that you brought us out here just to kill us because you couldn't give us the promised land? And God relents and he says, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, if you're not going to go, kill me now. I can't do anything without you, God. You must go with us. And the Lord does. He goes with his people and he's with them in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire all the way until he sets up his house in Jerusalem and for hundreds of years after until the glory departs as we heard about this morning in the sermon. But God goes with his people and that's shocking. It's enough to be forgiven, isn't it? It's enough to receive mercy and grace. But we get so much more than that. It's not simply that we're not destroyed. 
it's not simply that we're forgiven. It's that God dwells with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. And he does it here in a very surprising way. I want to close by drawing your attention to a little bit of trivia about the book of Second Chronicles. You may not know this. If you were to turn the page in your Bible, you would discover with me that the following book is Ezra. Ezra, which begins with the exact same words that Second Chronicles 36 ends with. And you might be inclined to think, along with some people, that what Second Chronicles is doing here, what the chronicler is doing here, is setting us up for Ezra and Nehemiah, the return of the people to build the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. But that's not where Second Chronicles falls in the Hebrew Bible. Second Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. So if you were a Jewish person living in 15 AD and reading the Chronicles, one book in your synagogue or around your table perhaps, and you came to the end of the Bible, the end of God's revealed word to his people, the last thing you would read is let him go up. That's the end of the Bible for you. And it begs a question, doesn't it? Chronicles asks a question implicitly in its final statement. The word is, let him go up. And the question is, who's going to go up? Who's it going to be? Who among all his people is going to go do this thing that God has decreed that a temple would be built and worship would be restored? Who's going to go up? And we receive a surprising answer to an unasked question. The answer is, no one. Ezra and Nehemiah participated in the restoration of the people to the land of Israel and the rebuilding of a temple in which the glory of God never dwelled. True worship was never restored in Israel. Pharisaism and political parties arose in the absence of true worship. The people had become corrupted. They had misinterpreted Scripture. And the temple was a brick-and-mortar building filled with nothing but air. God did not dwell there. The answer to the question, who will go up, is no one. The answer is, God came down. The New Testament begins by giving us the answer to the question the Old Testament ends with. Who will go up and restore the temple? And Jesus says in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And John in a little editorial comment says, and after he had been raised, the disciples realized that he was talking about himself. The rebuilt temple, the rebuilt place of God for worship isn't a building on a plot of land on the other side of the ocean. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. And he came down that we might be restored to fellowship and worship with God. That's the answer to the question the Old Testament leaves us with. Who will go up? God will come down. It's his nature to come down and rescue his people. This is how he is. 
What, is, what happens in the garden? Adam and Eve live in perfect harmony with God and one another in creation. And they rebel like Israel and like you and me. They sin like Israel and like you and me. And they dethrone God like Israel and like you and me. And then they hide in exile from God. And what's the very next thing that happens? God comes down and walks around and tries to find them. Israel ends up enslaved to Egypt for 400 years in between Genesis and Exodus. And they cry out to God, begging for relief from their oppressors and from their slavery and from their miserable conditions. And what does God say to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3? Excuse me, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know that word yada, I know intimately like Adam knew his wife Eve and conceived a child. I know with the utmost knowing what their sufferings are like, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. This is what God does. If we would read the Bible with this in view, that God surprises us, not by asking us to lift ourselves up out of the mire, to rescue ourselves from Egyptian slavery, to free ourselves from sin and death and Satan. Rather, He does the work and comes down. How freeing is that? You who trust in your legalism and religiosity, stop. God's done all the work for you. You who fear that your sins of the past are too much for him to overcome, stop fearing that. He's offered forgiveness and did all the work to bring it to you. You who are afraid of what's going on in the world around you, the bad weather and the bad politicians and the bad people, stop. God rules over everything. And he comes down to dwell with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Surprising, isn't it? I presume you've already eaten dinner. If you'll indulge me for a moment, turn back to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. And I'll leave you with this note. Remember, Chronicles was one book to the Jewish people, not two. For some reason, our editors thought that uh, this was too much for one book, so we split it up. But I want you to look at First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1, word 1. What is it? Adam. Adam. The chronicler begins with Adam and reminds us that we are all in Adam. He is at the head of our genealogy. And he ends by pointing us to the second Adam who's going to come down and save us from our sins. And what's the response? Let's go up to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, for the promises that are made throughout it from beginning to end that you yourself will come down and rescue us from our sin and oppression, rescue us from ourselves. Lord, would you be with us as you promised to be with your people, and would you help us to worship you 
in spirit and in truth, that we would be those who answer the call to go up to your house to worship. Thank you for your son, the most surprising answer to the question we didn't even know we needed to ask, who will save us from our sins? And his name is Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.